On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash O-T-O-S or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the Other Side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. So, thank you so much for tuning in. This is Blake Wright, and I am super proud to be able to introduce one of my dear friends and the smartest gal in Mormon history that I know. It's Christina Rossetti. Christina, say hello. Hello. Welcome to On the Other Side. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be on the podcast. So, Christina, I don't want to tell you too much about her because I want her to tell you all about herself, but she is a non-Mormon who is the smartest about Mormonism that I'm aware of. And um, I think she's the only non-Mormon that's employed by the Maxwell Institute ever. Is that right? No. So I wasn't um, technically employed. I was just a summer fellow. Um, and they've they've had a few in that position. But I think everyone that's a formal employee is still a Mormon. I could okay. be wrong. I don't think they've ever had a non-Mormon. I could be wrong, though. <laughs> Well, if you weren't the only one, then you're definitely the best one. So we'll just go with that. How about? I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay, good. So today um, we're going to talk a little bit about Leonard Arrington. And for those of you that don't know who he is, you're going to get uh, familiar with him really quick. But before we dive into Leonard Arrington, I kind of want to dive into who Christina is and how she got into Mormon history. So Christina, tell us about your childhood and how you're... Uh, and your faith and growing up and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I, I, you know, like you said, I've never been Mormon, didn't grow up Mormon. I've actually only ever known, like I only ever knew two Mormons growing up. I think um, my family has some, has a, you know, a close family friend that is Mormon. They're Mormon, but um, I grew up kind of generically Protestant. I would say um, my mom has a evangelical free and Baptist background and my dad was Roman Catholic. He's no longer Roman Catholic. He's agnostic, but um, you know, I, I remember my dad going to mass every single day when I was little. Um, he would wake up at like five 30 to go to mass before work. Um, and so he's not, he's agnostic now. And my mom, she's a, she believes very strongly, but you know doesn't go to church, and so that's how I was raised. Um, I went to Episcopalian school because it was a good school, not because it was Episcopalian. And I probably still couldn't really tell you what an Episcopalian believes. Oh, good, because I was just going to ask you what they are. <laughs> it's like Catholic light, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, like I don't. They're like Protestant, but like their leaders still wear big hats. I don't know. Okay. But. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like high church Protestant, but you know, I mean, we went to chapel on Monday, but that never, I don't know. I guess I kind of believed in God cause that made sense, but whatever that meant it, it, you know, it wasn't a huge part of my family's life. Uh, my grandmother was very Catholic and so was my uncle, but 
I don't, it wasn't, it was always there, but not really like present, I guess. Um, we went to church on Christmas and Easter, but uh, in high school, I went to public high school and, you know, I didn't go to church because that's not what we did. But for some reason, everyone in my high school, in like my age, became Christian, like our junior year. And I don't understand why, looking back, I've been trying to like think about that because I was asked recently about this. And I don't know why, but so many people became Christian and like got saved in my high school. And maybe it was, you know, the spirit in Aliso Nagal High School, but I don't, I don't know why so many people became Christian. Most certainly um, that's what it was. I mean, pr- probably. Uh, but, you know, my, my best friend at the time, she got saved and uh, I ended up, she invited me to church, like, you know, like people do. And I went and everyone was really nice and I really liked it. And the pastor, the youth pastor was great. And I really loved his wife. She, I still really do. Uh, and so within a matter of a few days, I got saved and I became a Pentecostal, um, which in hindsight, super strange. I was baptized in the ocean. It was kind of a weird experience. It was very cold. Um, and I, I never really believed a lot of the faith claims, but it made like, you know, everyone was nice and sure there there's probably a God, but my faith has always existed alongside my doubt. And so it, it was, it's comfortable, you know, to not be really sure. So what um, drew you to the Pentecostals instead of the Episcopalians? I don't just, my friend, like I, what's interesting is um, it's a very small division of the Pentecostal church. It's called the International Church of the Four Square Gospel. I, I know mm. uh, it's like a newer Pentecostal branch. It was created by this woman, Amy McPherson, who is kind of a lot. If you look at her, if you read her bio, she's just, she was a lot um, like staged her own kidnapping a lot. Like she was extra. Wow. Um, yeah, she was extra, but she started this church and it's just where everyone went. I don't know if anyone in high school knew what they were part of other than Christianity. Um, but you know, the church really was a proponent of speaking in tongues. And I knew I couldn't do that. And it was a really big proponent of faith healing. And I still wear glasses, you know, so a lot of the things that made that church what it was, I just never, it never resonated with me. Was your interpretation Um, of um, speaking in tongues tongues before you studied studied theology, theology, was it the same as it is now? Or did it change? I would say it's the same. Um, I mean, Spoilers, I became Catholic and the Catholic Church doesn't isn't doesn't do that as much. It's very much, you know, part of the Protestant world. Um I think I'm skeptical of it because I remember being in a room at Christian camp, like Jesus camp status, and not understanding what was happening or why I wasn't I was the only one who couldn't do it. Not the only one, but you know, like a handful of people who couldn't. Yeah, just the uh, big sinners. Yeah. Yeah, and like especially if you're part of a church that tells you that that is the sign of salvation, um, and I, like having to wrestle with like, well, dang it, that's weird because I was baptized and I believe, but dang it, why couldn't I make it? Um, and so that was really, it was really hard. Um, that was really hard. So, but I mean, again, I've always believed in relationship with my doubt, and that's always been very comfortable. So. That was fine, but um, but because of just my background and because of that experience, I became really interested in religion and 
people who are religious, mainly because the experience of knowing for sure about something was always very foreign to me. Like, you know, a lot of members of the LDS church will know that you stand up when you're little and you say, I know the church is true. And that's something that's so foreign to me because I, I don't know what that's like. Well, it just resonates in every fiber of our being. So I can. Right. Yeah. But, but like, I don't even know what that means to be able to say that. That's so. I'm not sure we do either, but we (laughs) we know it when we feel it. Yeah. I I mean, I like, I, I think that for a lot of it, I was barely able to say, I believe this is true. Um, So just this idea of saying, I know is so, um, that would have been so hard for me, but I became so interested in religion and I knew I wanted to study it. And so I decided to go to grad school after I, you know, finished undergrad, I was going to go to grad school and I just wanted to study religion. And I was really interested in 19th century religions, which kind of lays the groundwork for where I am now, but I wasn't sure which one or what that meant. And you still can't distinguish between Episcopalians and Pentecostals. Hmm. But like, I can tell you all about the Shakers and the Oneida community. Good. They, the they play like, a little bit of a role in, in church his, in LDS church history. Yeah. And so. I think there's currently two shakers. There might be three. I think there might be two though. Yeah. But they're having a rough yeah, time. Yeah. They can't, uh, they can't do any of the fun stuff anymore. I just think like, how great would it be to be the young hip person that converts to shakerism and like saves an entire religion single-handedly? <laughs> well, they don't even take converts, do they? Yeah, they do. Oh, okay. My bad. But, but you know, yeah. Well, people people aren't signing up um, <laughs> for some reason. It might be the no procreation. Yeah. Um, but I was really interested, and my very first year of grad school, I took a course with the the woman who became my advisor, and it was on Amer- American communal utopias in the nineteenth century, and I had to read Rough Stone Rolling, and. I was captivated by it. And I've, I've told this story a few times that I just fell so in love with it that you've seen the book, right? Well, I'm familiar with it, but maybe describe it for our listeners. And it, it is interesting to me that that was given in a communal utopia class. That's pretty interesting to me. Yeah. So the, the book, was the one of the primary books was on America's communal utopias. And there was a small chapter. Uh, it's by a man named Pitzer. His last name is Pitzer. And there was a small chapter called Of One Heart and Mind. And it was on the Mormons. And to supplement that, I read uh, Rough Stone Rolling. And just for, you know, listeners to kind of get a feel for how much I loved this, because people think this is nuts. It's a 561-page book. I know that because I'm holding it. I didn't just, like, memorize that. (laughs) Um, And I read it in two days. That is nuts. I can't even believe that. I, I think it took me, like, three months to read it. I like, I didn't sleep. I didn't really eat. I just sat there at my kitchen table and read this book and I couldn't put it down. I became so enthralled by Joseph Smith and by the story of the restoration. And I was determined to read every single book I could find on Mormonism. Um, yeah, I just, I loved it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a pretty influential book. Uh, it, it was written by Richard Bushman who has his own, um, I don't know, Mormon credo, I guess. And, uh, and it's not very apologetic as far as most apologetics go. And he's still a very active, faithful, believing member. And 
Um, so it was, I think it won yeah. the Mormon History Association's Book of the Year Award when it was well, released. Sure. Yeah, so. and we'll definitely talk more about him because he, he has a really big part to play in um, Arrington's story. Okay. But um, I wouldn't even call it apologetic. It's just a good biography. And he just happens to also be a temple sealer. Like, you know, um, that's kind of how I read Bushman is he's a historian first. And if you talk to people... At the, it's, it's really interesting. If you talk to people at Mormon History Association, they're shocked to find out sometimes that his primary thing is not Mormon history. And if you talk to people at American History Association, they're usually surprised to find out he does Mormon studies because he's just a historian. He just also happens to be a temple stealer. So he's, and he's also a really kind and generous man. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. And I wanted to learn everything about Mormonism that I could. And so I'm not a historian. I'm an ethnographer. So for short, that means I hang out with people and write about it. Um, and I had to learn to do that. And so I took a methodology class and we had to find a field site and I walked into an LDS Institute and I never left. That's so and cool. Here, and now I live in Utah. <laughs> Welcome to the fold. And I've heard you say a couple yeah. times that uh, if, if some theological changes happen, that you're going to get baptized. Well, I made a bad joke, one, <laughs> on uh, your polygamy that if Adam God comes back, I might get in the water. But until then, it's iffy. Yeah. And that I think that made you famous because now there's like memes of like make Adam God again. And, and I said uh, that one time and yeah. it became like this because it, it fits the acronym. It's perfect. Yeah, that's that's all it takes is once. And uh, but I wanted to ask you there's there's a couple of fundamental mormon sects that still believe that adam's god so why not just uh, join theirs um i could do that okay but i'm kind of good with this whole keep me busted thing but um yeah i but one of the reasons i fell in love with leonard errington was because he's the reason i'm able to do what i do um without him i wouldn't have been able to and what's What's funny is as I got so invested in Mormonism and I decided to spend the rest of my graduate career studying this religion, I simultaneously joined what so many Mormons for so long called the Great Apostasy. I became a Catholic as I was hyper-invested in Mormonism. And so I, I'm one of very few Catholics that study the church. I think there's three of us. Well, we're so happy to have you. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. You're doing great. I love your work and all your little uh, reviews and that kind of thing. Um, okay, so how did you come to find out about Leonard Arrington? So I knew about Leonard Arrington from forever, um, just because being someone who wasn't part of Mormon studies, I would meet people who were outside of Mormon studies and tell them what I did and people would look at me and say, do the Mormons let you study them? And I laugh at that now, but there was a time when that would have been a very legitimate question. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to look at those people and say, yeah. And a primary reason is because in the 1970s, this man named Leonard Arrington opened the archive and welcomed people outside of Mormonism to study them. And so, because, especially as an outsider, I'm indebted to Leonard Arrington for his work as the church historian, for making Mormon history accessible and for allowing people like me to do it. 
Yeah. And um, so his diaries that were just recently um, compiled, they, they were owned by his family for, well, since he wrote them, I guess, but they were kind of held on to, but they just barely got published. Mm-hmm. Right. What's, why did they hang on to him for so long? Do you think? Um, I mean, so he didn't just recently pass away, but you know, fairly recently. And it wasn't so much that, but these diaries took a long time to edit. Um, they were given to Gary Bergera at Signature Books, and he's the man who edited them. He did an incredible job. Uh, and everything is true to its original. There's only very few redactions. And a lot of people have asked what those are. And the redactions are really just people who are minor characters in the story of Leonard Darrington's life, meaning like students or random friends who aren't affiliated with the church uh, who are still alive. And that's it. Those are the only redactions. So it's a complete account of his life. And it was a labor of love for Gary to uh, publish these. And he actually won the Leonard Arrington award at Mormon history association this year for the diaries. So when we think about how long since he passed in their publication, this project took years to compile yeah. And I think um, Greg Prince wrote, he had access to him before they were fully released, right? And he wrote a nice little biography of Leonard too, I believe. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote the biography of Leonard Arrington. Um, and then now, now we have the diaries and I don't know how many people have read them at this point, but they're a fascinating read. If you want a peek inside of the institutional church and the bureaucracy of the church and how it runs, and you get to even see apostles that don't agree with each other and how they fought. And yeah, it's fascinating for people who want an inside look at how the church operates. Yeah, and I think we were talking before we recorded, but there's uh, there's quite a substantial percentage of the people who have read them on this podcast right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, exactly. So his diaries, uh, I imagine the most of the meat is in his time as church historian, but is there much from his childhood or anything pre-church historian? No. Not anything? No so, no, so he has some, so the diaries are just the section of him as church historian. And so how, the, like the diaries, how they worked is he has reminiscences of his childhood. So he looks back and talks about his childhood growing up and he recalls parts about his family but what's interesting is he this the diary really begins in 1971 when he's approached and called as the church historian and he makes a comment that his son told him people are going to read about your life one day and so he starts keeping a diary so he knows as he's doing this that this will be read one day um, he he there's no pre- pretense of I'm going to write this and hopefully no one knows what I said about Gordon B Hinckley. He knows that people are going to read this and that it's going to matter. So it's really just you know his life as church history and it goes until his death in 1997. But the main focus is his life as church historian. Yeah, and so what do we know about his life before church history? Did he grow up LDS? Did he convert? What kind of stuff can you tell us about that? Yeah, so his parents were devout Mormon. He grew up in Twin Falls, Idaho. Uh, He was one of 11 children. And he was a farm kid. He grew up on a farm. He talks about, he has some stories about raising chickens and winning awards for his chickens. And he actually spends a lot of time on these chickens and them getting sick. Uh, So agriculture was a really big part of his life. And he was really, he wanted to do that 
kind of permanently. And his dad actually told him that he wouldn't pay for Arrington to go to college, but he would pay for him to go on a mission. So that's kind of the level of Mormonism (laughs) that he grew up in. And he told his dad no. And so he didn't serve a mission. And he actually, in his diaries, recalls that and talks about how he doesn't regret it at all. He doesn't regret not serving. And he did go, he earned a a scholarship. He went to the University of Idaho uh, for agricultural science, but he fell in love with economics and he um, graduated as an economics major in 1993. 19, sorry. 1939. So he graduated in 1939. He ended up going to grad school at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he met his wife. Uh, He had a whirlwind life. He served in the military. He lived in North Africa. He lived in Italy. Um, so yeah, he had, he earned like two honorary doctorates. He taught at Utah state. Um, yeah, he had a full life before he, uh, became the church historian, but right before he became the church historian, Harvard university press published his dissertation and it became great basin kingdom. I don't know if you've read it, but a lot of people who might not be familiar with Arrington as church historian might be familiar with that book. Uh, and he was a full-time professor at um, Utah State. That's so cool. What did um, what did church history look like when he was going through all this stuff and writing books and serving in the military and winning all these awards? And what drew him to church histor- history? Do you think? So his he mentions that his interest in church history began with an interest in family history, which I think is pretty common um, for members of the church who get into it that way. Um, but he realized pretty early on that like he, from firsthand experience that the church history department and what it meant to do history for the LDS church was a completely different situation than what we would know now. Um, so the best example is he published something for, uh, pause. What is the name? Sorry, restart. He published something for BYU studies pretty early on and, it was considered revisionist history and it caused a big problem with BYU studies. And so he realized that there was a way church history was to be done. He also had to get special permission to go into the archive at the time. Uh, Witso was the one that kind of really helped the apostle Witso at the time really helped him get access. And it was because of his understanding of church history and what was happening in that department that he actually established the Mormon history association in 1965, and he was the first president of that organization. Uh, he also was really active in the Western History Associate with Western Histo- Historical Quarterly. He founded that. He was also the, the president of the American Historical Association. So he had an understanding of what history was, and it was very different than what Joseph Fielding Smith was doing with the church with the church history department, uh, which was very heritage based. It was faith promoting. It was trying to create a vision of the church that didn't have all the negative that so many people learn about later in life. It was a heritage-based way of doing the past. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners will know Joseph Fielding Smith was the prophet for a long time. Well, he wasn't prophet for very long, but he was the church historian before he was prophet for a long time. Um, Yes. And he had kind of a tight leash on that whole department. Yeah. He was very strict about how, about who could go in the archive. The archive was pretty much closed down to outside researchers. Um, Everything had to be run by him. 
Leonard Arrington actually calls him, actually says Joseph Fielding Smith comes close to the Latter-day Saint version of a hell of fire and damnation preacher. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how Arrington understood him. But when David O. McKay died, who, by the way, Leonard Arrington really liked, um, Arrington said that no prophet in the history of the church was as well prepared to serve as president of the church as David O. McKay. He, he really admired him. Mm-hmm. When David O. McKay died, Joseph Fielding Smith became the prophet. And there was a gap in that leadership position. And Howard W. Hunter um, took it for a bit and was going to reorganize. And at the time, everyone who had been a church, the church historian was a leader in the church previously. It was one of the 12. Um, and even today, it's a member of the 70. So currently, it's Elder Stephen Snow. And he's a 70, a general 70. So this was something that leaders of the church were. And so when a reorganization happened, Arrington became the very first secular historian to become the church historian, which is huge in and of itself. Yeah. And I want to point out too, that I think a lot of times like active believing members will think, well, Joseph Fielding Smith was so tight knitted because, you know, this is sacred documents he's holding. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I always think back to one of the quotes and I'm going to butcher it, but he, he was, he once said that there was no seer stone ever and that he's aware of. And I mean, it would have been in the church history archives, right? So uh-huh. um, some people look at that and say, well, that's a little disingenuous. And if, to be the head of the history department, it's really important to, um, I, th- I think, be a little bit more a forthcoming than that. So I think. Sure. And that echoes because Marky Peterson also commented um, during Arrington's tenure as church historian that he was very worried about giving access to, quote, sacred materials in the archive to unfriendly persons. Um, and so that, that resonated with a lot of people, even during Arrington's time. And Arrington had a, a challenging go with church history, and we'll talk about that. But um, I will say, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a defender of Joseph Fielding Smith. That's not something I, or anyone really, um, you know, the seer stone is in, it's in the vault of the first presidency. It's not in the archive. So technically, um, <laughs> technically, he wasn't lying. <laughs> um, but I mean, I will say the vault of the first presidency is a very closed space. And that even meant for Leonard Arrington, um, you don't get to go in there. <laughs> like you don't get to see what's in it. We, we know what's in it, um, now, but including Hiram Smith's garments are in there. Exciting. Um, but, you know, if people who work for the church history department don't get to go in there. You know, it's not that that is actually a very locked down space. OK. And I'm happy to give him a pass on that. But there are several. Oh, no, I'm not I'm not giving him a pass. I'm just saying. But even even if he wasn't aware of a physical stone, there are several Absolutely. documents that he would have been aware of. And Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, the Sear Stone kerfluffle um, <laughs> is, is because I always knew there was a Sear Stone. And like when I say that, that's because and I I want to preface that real quick by saying I I know there are people that didn't learn church history, a factual church history. And I know that people are hurt by that. And I honor that and I validate that I will never know what that feels like because I learned Mormon history from secular resources. And I know for a lot of members of the church that that's not an option. 
um, or at least they don't feel like that's an option or they're not taught, they're taught that they're not supposed to go outside of what the church says. And so, um, when I say I always knew there was a seer stone, I in no way mean to discredit people who genuinely were taught there wasn't one, Mm -hmm. um, because I can only imagine how painful it is to feel lied to by the religious institution you love. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you saying that. Um, okay. So now the church history department's super tight knit. Leonard Arrington's the first secular historian Mm -hmm. to be given the mantle of church historian. And, um, if I remember right too, uh, when he took over, it was just like a room in like the West wing of the LDS church office building. Yeah. It was in the church office building. It, it now has a beautiful building, but you know, we'll get there. That took, that was a process to get that. Um, but it was in the church office building and the document, all the documents were in the basement and it, it yeah, it was, it wasn't a formalized department because the church wasn't doing formal church history at the time. So when he stepped in, he had great vision for what he wanted everything to look like. He had plans to write the story of the Latter-day Saints, which we'll talk about the Mormon experience. He wanted to do this multi-part sesquicentennial series for the 150th anniversary of the church, where he was going to get all these incredible scholars and historians to do book to do books as part of the series. He had immense vision. And right off the bat, he hired Jim Al- uh, James Allen. Um, shout out to Jim Allen. <laughs> he's, he's great. And Davis Bitten as his historians. He also hired a bunch of grad students to work in the church archive. Some of the ones that your listeners will know was Mike Quinn was hired by Arrington. Uh, Richard mm, Bushman was hired. Great. Who's yeah. I mean, Leonard Arrington hired him as a grad student and said, you know, here's the archive write church history. Um, Same with Richard Bushman. So he compiled an incredible group of historians um, to fulfill this vision that he had. And at the time, right when he got the job, when he proposed the sesquicentennial series, um, there was hope for that. Elder Hunter, uh, he talks about how Elder Hunter said that he felt the church was mature enough that the history could now be honest and that suppressing information was going to, was, you know, it was time for that not to happen anymore. Um, so he had an, a lot of initial hope. And he really, one of his big things is he really believed that you could write a history that was faith promoting and true to the historical record at the same time. He believed in that mission. Um, and, you know, that mission was challenged really intensely uh, from day one. How was it challenged and by whom? Uh, so... Marky Peterson and Boyd K. Packer <laughs> were um, kind of two, our two big names. There's a, a few names that stand out, but those two really stand out as having deep concern for what um, Leonard Arrington was doing. So right away, Leonard Arrington wanted to open up the archive, which that's a dangerous thing to do <laughs> because if you open the archive, people can go inside and so, and read things. And so he decided to open the archive and that's where we get a lot of early people going in and publishing things that the church didn't like. And they specifically mentioned Sandra Tanner going in, you know, a lot of your listeners might know her and her husband. Yeah. Maybe we should, Um, we should discuss who they are. They're pretty important too. So they run, um, Lighthouse Research Ministries. Is that the acronym? Um, and they were Mormon. They're not Mormon anymore. They're evangelical or, you know, her husband passed away 
Um, she's an evangelical Christian, and she spent a lot of time. I don't. I don't even know how to, to accurately represent her, but in her own language, how she would talk about it. But debunking things in the church. I don't. I don't want to misrepresent her, but that's how. And she became known as an anti-Mormon. I don't love that language at all, but that's kind of the label that was given to her. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of that either. But yeah, she was. From my perspective, she was one of the first that started talking openly about the stuff that she was discovering, and um, people labeled her as anti-Mormon as she's just promoting the truth that she's discovering. And um, I think she was kind of pushed into that position rather than finding it herself. And uh, now we owe kind of a lot to her paving the way for other people to feel more comfortable in this uh, zone of truth telling without um, ostracization. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But she was, you know, they were early people that started going in the archive. Um, What's funny is he gives the title, the anti, like anti-Mormons to her and Fred Collier, who for your listeners, Fred Collier is a fundamentalist prophet. He's still alive. Um, He was ordained into the LeBarons and he went in and started publishing all the stuff about Adam God, all the stuff about polygamy, all the stuff at law of consecration. And there were, a, there was a group of fundamentalists that went in and started doing this. And so what's funny is Sandra Tanner is put in the same category as a fundamentalist prophet for the people that would go in and kind of quote, steal stuff from the archive. But because the archive, like, so that was a concern that the archive was open and Harold B. Lee was one of the first people that went to Arrington and said that, it was his feeling that the archive is not a public library. It's a private archive and it should have restrictions to it, uh, which was not so much Arrington's feelings. Um, but I will say that just, you know, in fairness, that this is not unique to Mormonism. Um, for people who kind of see, because today, like when I go into the church archive, I see, you know, families go in and they make an account on LDS.org for the church history library. And they fill out these little yellow sheets and they like fumble through microfilm and they're able to read diaries and they're able to read about their ancestors. And that's actually really unique for a religious archive. Um, As much as, you know, we talk about the church um, being secretive or not time about their history. It's actually really unique for anyone to be able to go inside an archive. Um, like like hell, will the Vatican let me go inside their archive? It's just not a thing. Like, you, you can't do that. And do you think um, that's because um, they have secrets to hide too, or do you think that their stuff's just, like, monetarily so much more valuable? I don't even... I mean, I don't think it has anything to do with secrecy per se. Um, I mean, I think with the Vat, I think it's more likely the Vatican has secrets to hide than the LDS Church. Um, but and I mean, we'll we'll talk a little bit about what Arrington published. But when we re- when it really gets down to it, the last person that the last institution that's ever going to publish a history on the Inquisition is the Vatican. Mm-hmm. So, like, I while we talk about the Church hiding things, and you know, I'm very much someone that's willing to say that the Church did that. Um, I just want it to be clear that that's not unique to Mormonism. I think that's a religious institution thing. Yeah. Um, One thing I want to point out now that might be jumping ahead a bit, but um, I went to the release of Greg Prince's Arrington bio and Mm -hmm. uh, Elder Snow, the current church historian was there. 
and they talked a lot about how the the history department was run under Fielding Smith and how it changed under Arrington. And so I pulled Elder Snow aside afterwards and I said, hey, so we talked a lot about Fielding Smith's reign. We talked a lot about Arrington's reign. I want to know about your reign and how how are you um, handling openness and that kind of thing. And, and he said he's trying to be as open as he possibly can. So I thought that was yeah. pretty neat. And I mean, he, you know, he comes to Mormon History Association. Um, I took a selfie with him. It was super weird. Um, I, I think, you know, the LDS church is trying and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I would just say that when we want to talk about how religions deal with their history, you know, they don't. They don't. Um, and so I think under Arrington, the church did make great strides toward a more honest and open position. And I think Mormonism in a lot of ways set a standard because my church hasn't done that yet. Like I'm waiting on the Vatican for just to like release anything on, you know, certain controversial aspects of our history. We're pretty much really good at cover up, as you might know. So, but during Arrington's time, there was a lot of really particular challenges. Um, so for example, uh, at the, Dean Jesse, he was a historian um, at the church. He was writing letters of Brigham Young, letters of Brigham Young to his sons, and this is kind of an example that really sticks out to me as what the church was interested in doing and how the church was making sure certain history was told, but it was told in a very particular way. Um, and Dean Jesse got some pushback from the church because they liked the idea, they liked what he was doing. But they said, quote, did we need to mention that one of Brigham Young's sons had trouble with drugs and with the bottle? It's history, but need it be mentioned? So there was concern with, and, this is great that we talk about this, but do you need to talk about the fact that Brigham Young chewed tobacco? Is that really important? So I don't know if it was, it, it, that's definitely an example of hiding things. Um, but they were trying to couch it in this idea of, well, it's not really important. We need to talk about it. So that's kind of an example that really stuck out to me as how the church was operating in terms of history. Mm -hmm. And to some, that would be super important to know that Brigham Young had, had alcohol and tobacco throughout his life. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I you know have a friend who he had his faith crisis when he learned that Joseph Smith drank alcohol because he prided himself on never touching alcohol. So absolutely. These things matter to people. I remember um, uh, side note, I was on a date. This had to be, Oh my gosh, 2008. I was on a date and this girl was like, Oh, do you, did you go on a mission? Are you temple worthy? All stuff? And I started transitioning by then. And I said, yeah, I'm still Mormon, but you know, I'm transitioning a little bit. And, She's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I just believe things like Joseph Smith drank and all this stuff. And she refused to believe that. And I was like, listen, you you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. But uh, she just would not budge on on the idea that I thought he was um, he drank up mm -hmm. until his dying day. And um, she used the story of him getting an operation on his leg and refusing alcohol. Yeah. And I just Which, it, there's it, no historical evidence either way about that story. <laughs> yeah. But just the, just the mentality of just, no, I've deified this person to the point where they can't do that. I mean, God wouldn't have let him do that. I just, so that level of dissonance to me, just, uh, I can see how it can be triggering to people like 
Same thing with Brigham Young smoking throughout his life or, or chewing tobacco yeah. throughout his life, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, another one that came up pretty consistently is there was a concern about polygamy and that shouldn't be surprising. Um, but how to deal with that sensitive of a situation? Um, the general understanding was that polygamy shouldn't be included, even in Brigham Young's life, which is strange because most people really identify polygamy with Brigham Young, even though Joseph Smith started it. Sorry to all those people who say he didn't. He 100% did. Um, but Leonard Arrington, I mean, he talks about I have this great quote from Arrington. He said, I mentioned the problem we have as historians of discussing polygamy. We must do it since it is part of our history. We cannot avoid discussing it. Yet we cannot glorify it. That would play into the hands of the fundamentalists. And so he existed in this tension of we can't glorify the problematic parts, but this is who we are. Yeah. And that's super interesting, too, because he wanted to get into church history, starting with family history. And so if you completely whitewash Brigham Young's polygamy, you're mm-hmm. you're erasing a lot of people's family history, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, um, but at the same time, Arrington, Arrington did because, as I mentioned, he said that he wanted something faith promoting and also historically accurate. And so he did understand that in religious history, in devotional religious history, that there is discretion. Um, He said that he recognizes that some of our history cannot and should not be told. Judgment and discretion should be exercised. What that means is obviously super subjective. But even for him, he was, you know, he wanted it to be faith promoting, yet completely in line with the historical record. So maybe not only was it some pushback he was receiving from Marky Peterson and and Packer, but uh, maybe some internal pushback as well, it sounds like. Well, so one of the things that's, I want to say maybe, um, I do think he leaned more true to the church, true to the historical record, but I also think he was unique and it just doesn't seem like historical things bothered him. Um because he would talk about things like the first vision and later in his life, he mentioned, did it happen in actuality? Did Joseph see it in a metaphysical sense? I don't know. It doesn't matter. So he thought about these tough questions that a lot of people struggle with. And I think they just didn't phase him for one reason or another, but he was also very devoted to his church. Like he, he believed until the day he died that this is the true church on earth. Yeah. And that, that's a, uh tough position that I definitely wouldn't want to be in. But I do think it's an important um, role or obligation that historians have to um, try. There's no way to like do this uh, practically, but try at least to um, take your personal biases out and, and present the history as is, and then, you know, add your two cents at the end, if that, if that suits you. But um, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's hard. Like I, you know, I can tell a story and, a, you know, a historical situation and someone else can, and we're going to focus on different things. And that might be because I care mainly about fundamentalism and someone else doesn't. And so of course we're going to have different ways of looking at it, but I, you know, I think Arrington was really trying even so the, in, he, he tried, he published the story of the Latter-day Saints and that was really the first effort at a historically, you know, authentic vision of the church. And it got, you know, it's no longer in circulation. It was published by Desert Book, but you can't get it anymore. 
through them. Uh, and there were a lot of problems. Uh, a lot of people critiqued the bibliography con- that, as containing, quote, anti-church material, specifically because it implied that Zion's camp was a failure, which it was, um, that it wasn't inspirational enough, that it didn't go through correlation rigorously enough, that it wasn't in the right tone. So, you know, his first book out the gate through, as the, through the historical department, it was not met well. And it was around that time that the director of the historical department was replaced with G. Homer Durham. It was, it was Joseph Anderson. It was replaced with Durham, who became the church historian after um, Arrington's death. And through him, that's when we kind of start to see the major rifts and the decline of Arrington's era of open archive and larger access. Um, under Durham, you know, funding pr- declined. They stopped hiring people. The sesquicentennial series that Arrington wanted so bad was completely dropped um, under Hinckley. You know, they went to the legal department and they severed all the contracts with all the historians for it. It was tragic. And Leonard Arrington reflected on this and he called it a period of anti-intellectualism. In his language, he called it that because he saw that with this great rise in what the church history department could have been in response, there was a huge decline by implementing people who were going to make sure it didn't happen. Yeah. And uh, I think some of our listeners will hear that and say like, oh, it wasn't anti-intellectualism. They just needed to rein it in a little bit. But um, there's a quote, and I can't remember when it's from, by Packard that said like the three greatest um, adversaries to the church are uh, Mm -hmm. homosexuals, feminists, and intellectuals. So there was a Mm -hmm. pushback for intellectualism. And um, there are other quotes by him or Oaks that say things like, historians glorify the truth and they shouldn't basically. And um, so there was, it was kind of like, don't, don't use your own mind and your own wisdom. Use the Lord. There's a scripture that says that too. I'm just butchering all these quotes right now, but um, (laughs) no fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm willing to call it anti-intellectual. I mean, if Arrington was there and he felt it as such, I'm willing to use his language for that especially because there were leaders in the church who were not excited about intellectuals. Um, You know, I do think that that was absolutely something that was happening. And unfortunately that led to the church, the historical department moving outside of the church office building to the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute of church history at BYU. Um, And while Arrington was hopeful that this could allow for greater freedom, it also felt like a symbolic, it also felt symbolic that the church lacked confidence in the department. Um, at the same time, he, he was having really big problems with correlation. Um, what is that so, for our listeners that don't know? So correlation is the department that everything goes through um, to make sure that it is correct or in line with, you know, the current teachings and narratives and doctrines of the church. Yeah. And it's, it's a, uh... It's a way of if, if we're sending thousands of tens of thousands of missionaries out to all over the world, um, I think a, a main focus of the correlation department is to say, OK, we need to make sure all these missionaries are teaching standardized lessons. And so that everybody's getting the information that we want them to get, because that's way too many uh, mm-hmm. sheep to be watching over all the time. So we're going to delegate some of this stuff through the correlation department. Is that accurate? Yeah, and so the church understands it as a unifying process to make sure everything, yeah, is unified and kind of told in one way. But for Arrington, 
he saw it that in his understanding, he kept saying that he tried to make accommodations of correlation and how in their mind, quote, everything in the church's past is sweet and lovely, or we ought at least to pretend so. And in response to that, he said that he was angry, hurt, and heartsick at how correlation treated his history and how the church treated his history, which is tragic for a historian to feel that way generally, but also when it's about the church you love. Yeah, and and his his uh, professional life's work for the last decade or so, you know, seems to be quite a big role in that too. Um, yeah, uh, but, you know, he, he believed that this was important um, mainly because he has this really great quote that he says, quote, our religion cannot avoid coming to grips with historical truth because it is based on historical truth claims. The visit of Moroni, the first vision, the delivery of the Book of Mormon plates, the restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood and so on. A discussion of Latter-day Saint doctrine misses something unless the history is included, for the history gives power and significance to the doctrine, to our claims, to our lives. Our history must somehow reflect or reveal the historical character of our faith. So this wasn't just a project of, oh, I like history. He believed that history and doctrine and history and the church were intimately connected, and you couldn't have one without the other. And for a church that is only 187 years old, um, it doesn't have a lot of historical distance. You know, I joined a church partly because I liked the historical distance I got from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with a, for a church that doesn't have that, the doctrine is still very connected to the history. And so it makes sense that for him, if he's the historian, to, to not be able to tell the history in the way that it's, you know, accurate. Like, that would be tragic. Yeah. It is tragic for even people like me who have nothing, sure. no history background, just an affinity for it. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so Absolutely. so I don't know if we covered uh, how he, so he reigned from 72 to 82, right? Yeah, and it was actually uh, really I sad. Um, in February 1982, he was privately released. So tell us, tell us what that means and, and how that whole story went down. So he was just quietly released from his calling. Um, on February 2nd, 1982, um, G. Homer Durham was set apart. And he specifically mentions that, you know, April 1982 general conference rolled around and nothing was said. He wasn't thanked for his service. He wasn't, pub- he wasn't publicly released from his calling. He was just quietly removed. And so how does that differ from, let's say, Fielding Smith's, uh, the end of his reign? Well, so when... You know, as a lot of people will recall from general conference, when people are called to general positions in the church, general leadership positions in the church, it's talked about in general conference. And there's a sustaining and or there's a public release from a calling and someone is thanked. And it was as if Leonard Arrington had never existed. And there was actually a sad moment where a woman wrote a letter in wrote a letter to the church leaders asking why Leonard Arrington's picture was not in the historical department next to every other church historian. And when he, when he was released, um, Elder Durham's picture went up and Arrington's was still missing. And why do you think that is? So, you know, I think, I think Arrington's tenure was controversial for the church. Um, I think, you know, I think in hindsight, like I love him. So many historians love him. And I think historians at the time loved him, but for the brethren, he presented a problem. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so not only yeah. is, could it be like, well, out of sight, out of mind, if we don't put his picture up, nobody will be like, hey, who's this guy? And we'll have to dive into it. But it's also kind of right. like a 
ecclesiastical slap in the face, you know, like here's a position of honor and respect. That's just a picture on a wall. It's nothing fancy, but we're not going to, we're not going to do that for you because, you know, you promoted something we didn't want promoted like that. Just, uh, I don't know. That hits me kind of hard. Yeah. I mean, I read that and it was devastating, um, that he was so quickly forgotten and brushed over, um, intentionally forgotten. So that was really rough. I mean, he continued being the director of the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History until 1986. But, you know, he, as church historian, it was brushed over. And in 1985, he taught, he has a diary entry where he talks about that he heard from a friend that Packer told someone who told someone, you know, that Durham had been assigned to turn the department around because it needed to go back into the right direction. And so even Boyd K. Packer implied that um, Leonard Arrington had put the church history department in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I mean, depending on your views, they were right. You know, we had this, what do they call it? The Camelot years where um, a lot of this stuff was coming forth and people were learning all this stuff that had previously been um, brushed under the rug, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it seems like they, they did turn it around a little bit and we had, uh, the famous September 6th in 93 and, um, and. Which was really, I mean, Arrington talks about those very upfront because he, he knew these people, you know, he hired Mike Quinn. He worked with Levina, uh, he, Levina Fielding Anderson. He knew these people. And so he expressed great sadness over the excommunications that happened. Um, it was, you know, it was hard for him. These were people he loved. He, and he even, he actually had a lot of questioning over ex, the excommunications that were happening generally. At the time, Sonia Johnson, who was a proponent of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, was excommunicated. And even as a leader in the church, you know, there were moments where he was like, huh, what is happening? So, you know, he wasn't, he believed in the leadership of the church, but he was very willing to question it and wonder if this is okay. Yeah. And so I, I want to just yeah. shout out to my, my uncle, I think was the first person excommunicated after the September 6th. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that was kind of my very first, I was nine years old at the time, but that was my very first time thinking, uh, wait, what's happening? Like you said, Leonard did. Cause uh, he's so smart. He's a, he's a professor of Middle Eastern history at Brandeis right now. I think he's the Dean of Middle Eastern history, oh, wow. but yeah, he's just so smart and always so, um, brilliant with church and historic history and stuff. And all of a sudden he gets excommunicated and I was just a kid and I was thinking like, wait, he's so smart. Like that's, that's the kind of Mormon I want to be when I grow up and uh, look at that. I'll be, but I was nine. So I was like, Oh, well, I just don't get it. So I'll just keep praying. (laughs) I'll just keep praying. Yeah. I mean, it's excommunications are hard generally. Um, But you know, what, what I, what does make me feel better is despite how quickly they moved on and despite kind of him being forgotten, it, uh, Arrington knew that he made a difference. He knew, he knew that he mattered to people. Uh, right after he was released, he has this great quote that says, quote, I am kind of a symbol to many people of honest LDS history of the necessity of giving a forthright and impartial look at our past. And I love that. Like, I, I love that despite it all that he knew um, 
what he meant to people. Yeah. And I, I resonate with that because he is a symbol for me and uh, he's up there with Richard Bushman and um, yeah. a few others that I just really respect that they can promote an honest, authentic, true history and still maintain a level of faith that I struggled with for years. Yeah. Cause I, I was Mormon AF. I just wanted to uh, make, <laughs> make it work. And I'm learning all this history that's troublesome or, distinct from the history I was taught. And fortunately I had people like Arrington to look up to and, and, and kind of rely on, like they, they were the, on the pedestal that I was striving to attain, you know? So I resonate with that a lot. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And so, I mean, there was a period of the archive was still open. Um, it was, you know, more restricted, but it never, it wasn't completely closed again. And it wasn't until 2005 that the department was returned to the LDS church headquarters. And there's a beautiful building now across from the temple and anyone can go. I don't think people know that. Um, anyone can go inside the church history library. And if you make an account on LDS.org, you don't have to be a member of the church because I have one. Uh, it's called like a friend of something. I don't know. Uh, and you can go through the catalog and there are things that are close to research. There are things that you can't see and it'll say close to research, but you can fill out this little yellow slip and you hand it to one of the people that works there and you'll get a microfilm and you will fumble through it if you've never used one before. I was actually, one of the greatest honors in my life was Mike Quinn taught me to use a microfilm machine because I was one of those people that could not figure it out. And then Mike Quinn walked in the archive and I was like, dang it, now I look dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so cool. I just felt the spirit with tingles because that would be so cool to have that happen. It was, yeah, he, he was there almost every summer the year that I first went to do historical research. And he sat there and listened to me talk about my research and he listened to my frustrations and he, he walked me through what it means to write history. And so I mean, I'm so grateful for him, but for those I, that don't know, maybe give like a couple minutes uh, bio of Mike Quinn. Cause he's just so important and I just love him to death. Yeah. Mike Quinn is a historian. Um, he wrote early Mormonism and the magic worldview, which was the second book on Mormonism I ever read. Um, and a lot of people are familiar with that. He also did the Mormon hierarchy, um, the three part series on the hierarchy of the church. Um, but he has a lot of really incredible books. He's an independent historian now. And he was one of the September 6th. Um, he was excommunicated for the history that he told of the church. So, and it was tragic because he believes. Yeah, he's still faithful if, I, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's a brilliant historian and he's one of the kindest people <laughs> that I know. So, but I, I, I want people to know that, that they can go to the archive. One of the things that I don't think most people know is if you walk into the church history library, if you walk all the way into the very back, there are these glass cases. And if you touch on them, they light up. And on the very far left, there's the original um, handwritten copy of First Nephi that Joseph wrote, that was written while Joseph's face was in a hat. Um, you can see the original Egyptian papyri that the Book of Abraham facsimile was created on. Um, you, you can see the original plate for that facsimile. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is on display in the church history library and you can go see it. That is so cool. The seer stone's not there, no. I will say. 
And that that has still to this day, you know more about this, I'm sure, than I do. But still to this day, there's a little bit of controversy of that, right? Because there's there's two stones and one of them's promoted because of who owns it, maybe, or something along those lines. There's, I mean, the new Saints book talks about it. Um, I know you wanted to mention that a bit, but the, the Enzyme did publish an article on the seer stone. Um, one of the things that I find really strange is if you go in the Church History Museum, they have the original printing press. They have the box that the plates were kept in. Um, and then they just have a picture of the stone. Yeah. Why Why not just you have a picture of it? Why not just put the stone here? What is happening? <laughs> um, but there, there were multiple stones. Um, one of the things that I found, you know, since we're on the Sierra Stone subject and I'm allowed to be on a soapbox, one of the things that I was so frustrated by in the New Saints book is it just kind of randomly says, and then he got a Sierra Stone. It's great. Um, that seer stone belonged to Sally Chase, who was a little girl who used seer stones for divining. And it was hers. And no one ever talks about the fact that he stole someone's seer stone. Yeah. And that, that was the, that was one stone, but another stone he stole from, uh, they were digging a well and they found it and he said, Hey, can I keep this? And it, I want to say it was, that was, the, that was the chase. Well, I think. Oh, okay. Willard chase. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was, it was Sally's dad. Right. But, why aren't we talking about this? and there's actually like a group a really tiny group of mormons that follow sally chase so i don't why are we talking about her but you know i don't know and i also think it's the serious something is so strange to me as an outsider someone who's never been part of this world because in my mind you know again complete outsider in my mind a serious stone is no more is no less strange than an urim and thummim and so I don't understand why one is talked about and the other's not. But that's just me. Yeah, well, I think I'll have to lead you to Uchtdorf's talk on the iPhone is just a modern-day seer stone, and then it'll clear it all up for you. Okay, great. Yeah, okay. thanks. Yeah, so um, so we had Leonard Arrington's reign, and then they kind of retrenched a little bit in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, we talked a little bit about like where the church is at now. You can go into the church archives, but they just, yeah. you mentioned that saints book. They just, they just <laughs> published just this month. Yeah. Um, and it's the new standard for truth. So if you were wondering where to find truth, we have, uh, free access to it. Now you can download it for free on your app. Um, you can, and I will, so it, it looked, cause I got a hard copy cause I'm old you. fashioned. Yeah. Um, and so I went to Deseret Book and bought one. Um, it's a really hefty book. The font is massive, which was so strange to me. But it's a big book, and it was like five bucks. So I would, you know, I would look into it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a book. I, I don't. So I'm not mad at it. I know. Yeah, tell us more not, about how you feel about because I I read maybe five pages before I I got pretty disenchanted with it, and I I was frustrated. I put it down. Um, oh, okay. tell Interesting. us, tell us your thoughts. Well, I'll tell you, well, why. I'm, more inter- I'm more interested in your thoughts. <laughs> well, first of all, the subtitle standard for truth, if you're going to use that, you better be very forthcoming with truth. Um, sure. in my opinion, if it's the standard for the true and living church on, on the face of the earth, and this is the standard for it, uh, I, I think it has a higher standard to live by than say, just like, here's, Quentin L. Cook's take on history. No, this is the standard for truth. And so I started reading it and just in the five pages, I noticed 
maybe half a dozen uh, omissions. And I'm no historian. I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, interested by it. And I noticed at least half a dozen omissions that I thought were very important to the story that they were telling and were very telling to the story they were trying to promote. And so um, I really wanted to get your take on it because you know infinitely more than I do about LDS church history. And I just want to know what your view is on where, because to me, this is where church history is the most current up-to-date church history department release and what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, in I know a lot of people have really strong opinions on this. Um, I'm not mad at it um, in general. Um, again, I'm not someone that grew up with a specific narrative and now it's different. So that does color the way I look at things. Um, my biggest problem was the subtitle, like you mentioned, um, because it perpetuates the reason the the problem that got us into this mess in the first place, that there is one narrative of truth and it's the only one and it's the one you should go to and anything else is untrue. And that was the narrative for so long. And then when people learn other things, it causes a faith crisis or it causes people to doubt their leaders. This is the reason that we were, that we were in this mess and it's happening again with a subtitle that's saying, this is the standard. It's the only narrative. And so, and that's just not how history works. History doesn't have a single narrative. There's infinite ways to write history. There's infinite methods. There's infinite theoretical frameworks. And so that bugged um, a little bit. I thought, I thought they dealt with polygamy really poorly um, because what was, one of the things that was so strange is they didn't talk about certain wives that they talked about in the church essays. Helen Mark Kimball isn't there, um, for example. Um, but they talked about some of the wives without mentioning they were wives. So it talks about Mary Rollins Leitner and how she saved the pages from the Book of Commandments when the mob was coming. But then they, like, they don't mention that she was a wife. And so I found it very strange that they talk about all these women. They mention Zina Young. They mention Eliza Snow. But they don't mention that they were wives. Yeah. And I found that to be a huge problem. And, you know, people reached out to me and they mentioned that, well, you know, they can't include every person in church history. The book would be massive. These weren't random townspeople. <laughs> These were Joseph Smith's wives. Yeah. We don't need to include the prophet's wives. Like they are not important. So yeah, that, 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 that bug, um, you know, there, there were omissions. They're not ones that, you know, I'm not, you know, painfully upset with, I can understand, I can understand how certain people, um, dealt with a faith crisis or encountered a part of church history that led to them questioning things because of a certain topic. And that's missing. I can completely understand why an omission like that would be painful or upsetting. Um, but, you know, coming from my perspective, I wasn't super upset with it it reads like any history, any church would write about itself. Mm -hmm. It writes about like, you know, if I'm writing memoir about myself, like that's probably how I would write it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to like make enemies. There was there. The, so the section I read was um, about Oliver Cowdery and, um, Oh, I'm blanking on her name. His first plural wife. Um, the Fanny Alger. And, so I'm reading about oh, I'm reading, when when Oliver found out. Yeah, I'm I'm reading about this and um yeah. Oliver's reaction was just kind of mentioned as uh he was upset with it and uh didn't really go into why he was upset with it and um right. they they 
mentioned her as though he was sealed to her as, and they didn't really get into the nuance of that. And I try to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes, because sometimes I think that they're just trying to publish a book to, to get information out there. And there were so many citations that it led me to believe that the people publishing this knew the, the, the accurate, in my opinion, version, um, and chose, made a conscious effort to omit those things. And the reason I think it's happening is, um, the church can now say, you know, if somebody comes to them and says, well, what about Fanny Alger and that whole debacle? Somebody can say, oh yeah, I read all about that in this new standard for truth. So I know all right. about it and it doesn't shake my testimony at all, which completely um, dismisses the years of heartache and paving that people have done to get us where we are today and that the church can even publish that without a bunch of people throwing a fit. Yeah, and I... I appreciate that. I will also say I know people who worked on this project and I know what they went through to get it the way it is. And so they were, so, they were trying to get more and they received pushback. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I mean, I'm, I don't, I, I just know, I know the people who worked on this and I know that they're brilliant historians. Um, and I think that there's a lot of similarities with Arrington that he had vision for things that couldn't be met because of like correlation is still a thing. Things still have to be run by the leadership of the church. The brethren aren't historians. Um, They understand history to be very different. And so my hope, especially in watching the devotional and seeing comments come in, um, the historians that work for the church are doing the best they can. You know, they're they're doing the work that they're going to do. And the church history department today, you know, whatever opinions you might have about the church, the church history department is doing incredible work right now. The Joseph Smith papers is killing it. Um, I, I know a lot of people. Ha- I, I love that project. I know a lot of people haven't read all of it um, because they're massive <laughs> books. Um, they're going to be starting the Wilford Woodruff project, uh, Diaries project. Um, so I think there is a move toward transparency. I think Saints is intended to be a devotional book, um, but we have to remember that the, that Saints was written by the same department that did the Joseph Smith project. It's in the same. It's housed in, not the same group, but it's housed in the same building. I think Saints was written for a different audience and a different purpose than the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And so as much as I can understand people's frustrations with it, I just hope people keep that in mind, that this is a devotional book meant for devotional purposes. This is not supposed to be the standard work for historians in, you know, in secular history. This isn't going to the American History Association to win an award. Yeah, this but is, this is a devotional book. I'm pretty sure that my way would be better than all your friends' ways and these people that are professional historians. Okay. Fair, so, fair, fair. I mean, no, I, mean, I I've do. Heard res- that I've heard that a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you have, and I, I honestly respect the work that they do. And I, uh, when all said and done, I'm glad that more people are going to be reading Fanny Alger's name um, and mm-hmm. Helen Mark Kimball. And so I, I say it's a win uh, overall. Yeah. So I, I hate to. Uh, portray a negative view on something that I'm grateful for. Yeah. I mean, and I could, I could be biased. I a hundred percent realize I could be biased, but I just so appreciate the church history department and how far they've come, especially because I know that the, and as you know, again, I realize that people who are part of the church or who are leaving the church have problems with the way history has been told and with the leadership, but the LDS church in their telling of their own history is light years ahead of the Vatican. 
Like that needs to be kept in mind that churches don't do this, that they don't, churches don't owe people this and they don't do it. The, you know, churches don't do this. So I think people need to, I think that needs to be kept in perspective that this is actually rare for religious institutions to do. Yeah. And I agree with that a hundred percent. And I love that. I'd love to see more of it. Um, we're, that's not to say it's perfect. That's not to say it's perfect. Well, it is, you know, um, yeah. but before we end, I just want to, um, kind of get your take. You're, you're, you said you're not a historian, you're an ethnographer and I, I would have to let you label yourself however you want, but you are very well versed in church history. And I want to get your take on why you're, why you like it so much and why you think it's important if you do for other people to study it. Yeah, I, I, just, I love Mormon history. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of really great work right now that talks about early Mormonism and Jonathan Stapley just wrote a book called the power of godliness. It's incredible. And he uses really beautiful language to paint this picture that Mormonism reopened the heavens for people. Um, in the 19th century, you know, prophecy stopped. People weren't really speaking in tongues. Like all the gifts disappeared and Mormonism reopened the heavens and it made the world enchanted again in this really unique way. And in so many ways, Mormonism continues to do that. And like I mentioned how people who are part of Mormonism, so many people stand up and say, I know the church is true and they believe that. And that's so foreign to me. And so I'm, you know, eternally captivated by this tradition that made the world an enchanted place again and that people believe in that. Um, you know, but I know a lot of people aren't going to be interested in that, but for people who aren't interested in just Mormonism, Mormonism is a microcosm to understand so much of American history generally. Um, you can't talk about polygamy, well, you can't talk about the construction of the American family without Mormonism. You can't talk about women's rights and suffrage without Mormonism. You can't talk about the American construction of race and whiteness without Mormonism. Um, you can't talk about colonialism and the frontier without Mormonism. Um, it's, it's a way to talk about bigger issues. And so that's kind of why I love it. Well, I'm so glad you love it because it makes it so much more accessible and easier for dummies like me to ingest it. Well, yes. Um, well, I want to personally thank you and publicly thank you for being on our show today. It was really fascinating for me and hopefully it is for some of our other listeners. Is there anything you want to promote or say before we sign off here? Uh, no, just look out for more things that the church history department is doing because they have some great things coming great. up. Thank you so much, Christina. Let's go in the garden. You'll find something waiting right there where you left it lying upside down. On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. Side is lighter when you turn it around. Everything stays right where you left it. Everything stays, but it still changes. The intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays, a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Wallentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blywallentine.com. Everything stays right where you left it. Everything stays, but it still changes.